lex talionis. The punishment will perfectly fit the crime. Folks, if you understand that, then it should drive you to flee from God's justice to His grace found in His Son. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Does the Bible condone retribution and retaliation? Are there legal precepts found in Scripture? And if so, is there a difference between the way God enacted justice in the Old Testament and the New Testament? Hello, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom begins a brand new eight-part series titled An Eye for an Eye. By the world's standards, if you've been wronged by someone, the right course of action is to demand a similar or equal punishment to avenge the wrong. But that's not how Christ Jesus describes His kingdom. However, does that mean Christians should not pursue justice for any type of offense? What are the biblical ethics and standards of the kingdom of God toward justice and punishment? And what does that look like in the daily, practical living out of those standards? Tom, no doubt the phrase an eye for an eye has all throughout history generated a number of different opinions and responses from people. Hasn't that been true? That's right, Bill. It certainly has. In fact, I think we have to be honest and say this concept has been one of the most misunderstood concepts in all of Scripture. In fact, what we're going to learn is that true justice belongs to and flows from the character and nature of our God. He defines what justice is, and particularly when it comes to the issue of when we've been wronged and how should we respond. The teaching of the Pharisees was retaliation, retribution, and Jesus says that's not God's way. And so we're going to learn how to think about and process and respond to those times when we are wronged. Nothing could be more appropriate for the world in which we live. Thanks, Tom. And friend, let's join our teacher now to get us started on The Word Unleashed. How do most people respond when they are wronged by others? Well, essentially, for most people, they will respond in one of two ways or both, and that is either by holding grudges against that person who's wronged them or by trying to get even. Either by harboring resentment and bitterness or by actively pursuing revenge. This is a very old problem. It's a problem as old as the human race. When there were only four people on the planet, this happened. Read secular history, and it reads like a manual on revenge. For example, 400 years before our Lord was born, the Greek philosopher Euripides wrote this, This is sweet, to see your foe perish and pay to justice all he owes. This is sweet. Aristotle wrote, men regard it as their right to return evil for evil. And if they cannot, they feel they have lost their liberty. That same theme of revenge not only permeates ancient history, it also permeates so much of Western literature. I remember when I was in high school 
being deeply affected by reading Edgar Allan Poe's little short story called A Cask of Amontillado, in which he describes the carefully plotted, bizarre, and as only Poe could do, macabre sort of revenge that was exacted against his enemy. Or there's Shakespeare's villain Shylock, who in The Merchant of Venice gives those immortal words, I will have my pound of flesh. Revenge permeates so much even of modern entertainment. Many of the movies are about revenge. The general consensus of humanity is this. Revenge is sweet. And yet, exactly the opposite is true. Francis Bacon wrote, A man that studies revenge keeps his own wounds green. Charlotte Bronte in Jane Eyre describes the the sense of revenge. She writes, Something of vengeance I had tasted for the first time. As aromatic wine, it seemed, on swallowing, warm and racy. Its after flavor, metallic and corroding, gave me a sensation as if I had been poisoned. Harboring personal grudges and pursuing personal revenge are rooted inextricably in the human heart, in your heart and in my heart. And if you doubt that, let me just invite you to a little exercise. After the service is done this morning, I want you to just stroll past our nursery. And I want you to watch those kids who are able to interact with each other. And you will see act of revenge after act of revenge. Right? As soon as our children are able to talk, and they don't have to be taught this, by the way. Nobody, nobody had a class on this. As soon as they're able to talk, what do they say? He hit me first. Now, as parents, what, are, what is the logical inference we are to make from that statement? Think about it. The implication is... They hit me first, therefore, I had a right to hit them back. Revenge is my personal right. That's what that child is declaring. And unfortunately, that tendency doesn't go away when we reach adulthood. It only becomes more subtle, and in some cases, far more dark. It's how the world usually responds to personal wrongs. A person is wronged and they make a conscious decision to hold a grudge, to resent that person's wrong. And then some people take the next step and they wait for or plan for and prepare for an opportunity to get even. And then eventually the time comes and they make them pay for what they did. Can we just be honest with each other and say this is how we're all tempted to respond to personal wrongs? In fact, I want you to do this exercise. I want you to think for a moment about the one person or the two people or the the group of people who have most hurt you in your life. Who are the people who have hurt you in such a way that you still bear the wounds, the scars of those hurts? I think if you're honest with yourself again, you know that you are tempted to harbor a grudge against them, to harbor resentment in your heart to nurse that and allow it to fester. And perhaps you're even tempted to contemplate revenge, even if you would never carry it out, to consider it, 
or perhaps even to pursue it. Today we come to a passage in which our Lord tells us that as his disciples, we must relinquish all our supposed right to personal retaliation. Grudges and revenge have no place in his spiritual kingdom. That's the Lord's message to us today. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5. Jesus introduces this most famous sermon of his by describing the character of those who actually belong to his spiritual kingdom. What we call the Beatitudes, Jesus is describing the character of those who are truly his. You see, everyone here this morning, every person in the world, belongs to one of two kingdoms. There's no neutral ground, according to God. Either you belong to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, or you belong to the kingdom of Satan. That's it. You say, how do I know? Well, Jesus describes those who belong to his kingdom in what we call the Beatitudes. It begins by being a beggar in spirit. Have you ever come to the place in your life where you've acknowledged before God that you are a beggar before him and you have nothing he wants and that your only hope is if he will reach out to you in mercy and grace? That's where it begins. And Jesus goes on to describe us, those of us who belong to his kingdom, in the Beatitudes. Then in verses 13 to 16 of chapter 5, he describes the influence of those who belong to his spiritual kingdom. They're like salt and they're like light. But then that brings us to the body of the sermon. He gets to the body of the sermon beginning in chapter 5, verse 17. And here he describes how the citizens of his spiritual kingdom actually live. This is what kingdom living is. And he begins by identifying the essence of kingdom living. Here's the heart of it. It is wholehearted obedience to the scriptures. If you belong to Jesus you have a heart that longs to obey him. In fact, he goes on to say his disciples' obedience to the Scripture is radically different from the obedience of, his scribes and, of the scribes and Pharisees. Look at verse 20. Unless your righteousness surpasses or overflows far beyond that of the scribes and Pharisees, you absolutely will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You're not a part of my kingdom. Now, in the verses that follow, really through the rest of chapter 5, Jesus gives six illustrations of how the righteousness of his true disciples surpasses that or goes beyond that of the scribes and Pharisees. The righteousness of his disciples starts in the heart. It's not about external conformity. It's not about just doing the right thing so you look good or so you can be satisfied with yourself. It's a heart that longs to obey God. And from that flows obedience. That's what his disciples are like. It's obedience in the heart and from the heart that flows out and affects the conduct. Now, in each of the six illustrations Jesus gives, he first shows how the scribes and Pharisees had misinterpreted the Scripture, the Old Testament that they had at that point. And he explains then its true meaning. So let's look at it together. Let me read the paragraph for you. And remember, these verses are interconnected. There's a central theme. See if you can discern it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. 
But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Now, folks, these verses are some of the most hotly debated and, frankly, almost completely misunderstood verses in all of the New Testament. These verses uh, have been and are used to argue for pacifism, for complete non-resistance, and even, in some cases, for anarchy, as Tolstoy did. At the same time, this passage contains some of the most familiar expressions in the English language. Expressions like, an eye for an eye, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. Because it is such a powerful passage of Scripture. The problem with this text is not the text itself. The problem is only a problem when the verses are ripped from their context and made to say what Jesus never intended them to say. You see, when we study the Bible, just as when we study any piece of literature, we must always remember the context. Sinclair Ferguson describes what can happen when you ignore the context or when words are taken out of their context. He tells the story that 20 or 30 years ago, a colleague of his had gotten a hold of the what was at that time new software that you could use to translate from one language into another. You could enter language in English and it would translate it into Russian. And as they were enjoying this new software, someone decided to type into the program the words of our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane in which he said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Pretty straightforward, right? The problem was that because the program couldn't recognize context and therefore the different sense of words, it used the wrong sense. So the word spirit became the word whiskey. You see the, you see the connection. And the word flesh became beef. So when you translated the Russian version then back into English, it came out like this. The whiskey is stronger than the beef. That's the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Ferguson's point was that the new technology at that time was not yet able to interpret language based on its context. And context is absolutely crucial to understanding. So when we look at this passage, when you look at these verses, it's a paragraph. This paragraph has one central idea, and all of the verses connect back to that idea. You cannot wrest them from their context and just use them however you want. So with that in mind, what is the context here in which Jesus delivers these radical words? We're going to unpack this today and next week, but let me just give you the big picture. The essential message in this paragraph, the big idea in this paragraph is this. In his spiritual kingdom, Jesus will not allow his disciples to harbor grudges or to pursue personal revenge. If you belong to Jesus Christ, he says you are not permitted, you have no right to harbor grudges or to try to exact revenge. 
Jesus is correcting not the Old Testament, but instead he is correcting the popular misunderstanding that has come because of the scribes' teaching. So let's look first at the popular misunderstanding of an eye for an eye. You see, the scribes' explanation of that Old Testament expression completely distorted its true meaning. Now, before we look at what the scribes taught, I want us to go back first and consider what the Old Testament law actually taught. Look at verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Literally, an eye in place of an eye and a tooth in place of a tooth. Now notice in the second half of verse 38, most English translations use all small capitals. That's the way English translations use to tell you that this is actually, these are words are taken from the Old Testament text. The Old Testament command to which these words refer is called the lex talionis. That's a Latin expression. It simply means the law of retaliation. The law of retaliation. The scribes were right in one thing. They were right that the Old Testament did require an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The question, though, is what does that mean? What was God trying to say by that expression? That expression, an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth, is only used three times in the Old Testament, in three passages. What I want us to do is go back and look at those three passages in their context so that we understand what the Old Testament actually taught so that we understand how Jesus is correcting it, okay? So let's go back and look, first of all, at Exodus 21. Here's the first place this expression occurs. Exodus 21. Now, again, to get the context, remember in Exodus 20, God actually spoke from Mount Sinai. He spoke in his own voice, people heard him, and he gave his summary of his moral requirements for humanity, we call the Ten Commandments. What follows in chapters 21 to 23 really has to do with the application of those moral requirements in the context of that new nation. In essence, then, chapters 21 to 23 are a series of case laws. And many of them deal with damage either to one's person or one's property. All right, now one specific case law I want us to look at occurs in Exodus 21, verse 22. If men struggle with each other, so here you have two men fighting, and in the midst of that fight, they strike a woman with child, so a woman who's pregnant, so that she has a miscarriage. Now, Notice there's a marginal note in your New American Standard. Go over and look at that marginal note. Or an untimely birth occurs. Literally, the Hebrew text says, her children come out. I think that's probably the better idea. That's how the English Standard Version, the ESV, translates it. It it means not so much that there's a miscarriage, the child dies, but rather that the child is born prematurely. Yet... There is no, and notice the word further, the NAS has supplied, that, that word, the fact that it's in italics means it's not there in the original language. And yet there is no injury. So the baby's born prematurely, but neither the mother nor the child are injured. 
He shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as the judges decide. But if there is injury, then you shall appoint life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Now what's going on here? In context, the point of these words is crystal clear. The punishment must fit the crime. The punishment must be severe enough to secure justice for the victim, but the punishment must not be so severe that it abuses the guilty. In other words, listen carefully, the lex talionis, the law of retaliation, defined true justice and at the same time, it restrained personal vengeance. Because if you were the relative of that person who had been harmed, or if you were the person who would be harmed, and you could exact your own penalty, what would you tend to do? It wouldn't be an eye for an eye. never is. If you see revenge take place, what happens? It accelerates each time. God says, I'm going to have none of that. The penalty is going to fit the crime. I'm not going to allow personal vengeance. Now, there's a lot of debate among scholars about whether this lex talionis was ever carried out literally or not. In other words, there's a lot of debate about whether if someone broke another person's tooth, if the the judges said break that person's tooth. It's possible. And there's one passage we'll look at that, that would be the strongest to imply that. However, many scholars, and I personally agree with them, that that is not how this law was normally practiced. It is simply a principle. It's a principial statement that says, let the punishment fit the crime. Because even in this chapter, if you go down to verses 26 and 27, you have a man striking his, the eye of his male or female slave. By the way, let me just stop here and say, God regulated slavery in Old Testament Israel, but it wasn't the kind of slavery we had in America The law of God absolutely forbid that kind of slavery. And in fact, if someone kidnapped another person and made him a slave, God said, put him to death. The slavery that's in the Old Testament was slavery where someone had been captured in war or a person had indentured himself or herself into slavery. So, in that situation, God regulates it. And he says, if if someone is struck and that eye is destroyed, let him go free on account of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his male or female slave, he shall let him go free on account of his tooth. This principle of a monetary, in this case the freedom of the slave, a monetary penalty levied against the criminal is in other places as well. So I think that's what usually happened. A financial penalty was levied for the injury that was commensurate with the crime. The Jewish Mishnah also says that's how the law was usually practiced. An appropriate financial penalty that fit the crime was levied. For example, here's one quote from the Mishnah. If a man blinds his fellow's eye, cuts off his hand, or breaks his foot, his fellow is looked upon as if he was a slave to be sold in the market. They will assess how much he was worth before the injury and how much he is worth now And the difference would be the financial penalty that would be paid the person who was injured. So it was a financial penalty that was exacted. I think that's probably how this was carried out practically. But regardless, what I want you to see is that the lex talionis was a just sentence that fits the crime. Now folks, 
This is obvious to us as we sit here today, right? But that's only because we enjoy a legal system that actually has its foundations in the lex talionis. Our entire legal system is built on the concept that the punishment must fit the crime. We don't always carry that out perfectly, but that's the idea behind our criminal system. But in the cultural context of the ancient world, the Mosaic law and this lex talionis was absolutely radical. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series, An Eye for an Eye. Tom will have part two for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you? Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the word unleashed. Again, that's listeners at the word unleashed dot org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.